0: I'm Alex Ripczynski.
1: I'm Angie Check. I'm Barbara Stewart. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I'm Marin Green. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Valerie Jacobson. And this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. My guest today on the Holistic of a Joanne podcast is Stephen Johnson. He's a DO. He's also the sitting president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophic Medicine. If you don't know what anthroposophy is, that's the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner, a totally different way of looking at the world, a way of looking at agriculture, and a way of looking at human health. And out of Steiner's work, in, in conjunction with Ida Wegmann in Germany— They derived a way of practicing medicine and addressing the needs of human beings through the lens of health and uh, combined forces to create what's known as anthroposophic medicine. And they have textbooks. I mean, it's just like the textbooks we use in allopathic medicine, only it looks at it from a very, very different direction. Imagine a flower bouquet sitting on a table and you've got a chiropractor At one side of the table, you've got a naturopath on one side of the table, you have an allopath like me on one side of the table, you've got a Chinese medicine doc on this side of the table. This is a multi sided table, you gotta bear with me here. This is a metaphor, and then you've got an anthroposophic medicine doc sitting on the sixth side, right? And you could add like 12 other seats for ways that people approach human health, but everybody's gonna see the same bouquet and they're gonna see it from a slightly different angle. So there might be more red flowers on my side. And I might say, wow, there's a lot of red flowers in this bouquet. Whereas the doctor sitting, you know, the anthroposophic doctor, perhaps Stephen Johnson sitting over there and he's on his side of the bouquet, there's a lot of yellow flowers. So he's like, well, there's actually a lot of yellow flowers in this bouquet. We're both right. We're just looking at it from different angles. And the more tools that we have in our toolbox, the better we are at fully addressing whatever it is that a person needs to reharmonize with their environment. And that's really the crux of anthroposophic medicine. It's really the crux of most practices in the healing space, apart from allopathic, which is that you're broken and we have to add something external to fix you, right? And of course, we don't ever fix anything. All that we can do is provide you the tools for your body to become realigned with who you are and what you're doing here in the Earth School. So it's with a great pleasure that I invited, uh, that I have Stephen Johnson on the show. He's the author of a new book that just came out, and it's called Mistletoe in the Emerging Future of Integrative Oncology. Those little bundles of like, they look like bushes that are up in trees around your neighborhood. They have them everywhere in our part of the country. You probably don't see it so much if you're out in one of the more arid regions like, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, southwest. But mistletoe has a wide variety of species. And depending on the type of species, when it's harvested, how it's selected and cultivated, it can be turned into a very potent medicine that Stephen and his team and his wide range of co-authors are using to very successfully treat a wide range of cancers. And we talk all about that in this episode, along with some of the underlying philosophies within the paradigm of anthroposophic medicine. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this episode. I don't want to delay you any further. You're champing at the bit to hear what Stephen has to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Johnson. All right, Stephen, welcome. Welcome to the Holistic Obiduane podcast. Um, Thank you so much for taking some time out of your very, very busy schedule to chat with me a little bit about anthroposophical medicine. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, Nathan. Hi. (laughs) So, you know, we we prepared a couple questions here for the show. Um, As you know, this is not just a, this sort of sterile, like, let's talk about cervical cancer or whatever type of program. That's the easy stuff. What I'm really trying to do is invite other voices into this healing space, Um, specifically your voice, because you wrote with some some co-editors, a book on mistletoe therapy and cancer treatment, inviting voices like yours in, because as you know... And of course, in my practice, a lot of people were pretty hyped up about chemotherapy and radiation and all these other techniques that we use within the quote, Western medical model. And sometimes people want to know, are there other options out there? And this is a pretty promising, actually a pretty ancient technology or, you know, ancients relative, of course, but this uh, mistletoe therapy dates back to, gosh, what is it? The fifth century or something? I mean, this is a pretty old practice. Can you give a little history on that? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what anthroposophic medicine is at all.
0: Sure, I mean mistletoe therapy, yeah, it goes back to Paracelsus really, where that would, he he used it quite a lot in his practice, mostly for skin type cancers and seizures and neurological type problems and things like that. I think it was Dr. Ida Wegman and Dr. Rudolf Steiner who brought it out more as a cancer remedy in terms of systemic cancer therapy back in the 1920s. A lot of preliminary research was done and a lot of testing was done in the Arlesheim Clinic there. It was called the Lucas Clinic at the time, or the Edith Aikman Clinic, and they started seeing some in vitro and in vivo studies showing, yeah, cancer cells actually respond to mistletoe. And then, of course, R. Steiner gave this whole picture of why he chose mistletoe because of its relationship to fever and warmth and how these constitutional elements are so important in helping immune regulation and also helping the body's immune system to become much more, uh, have a much higher capacity for, uh, I would call it immune surveillance, mm. you know, to recognize a foreign body like a cancer and, and be able to try to bring that back into the healthy stream and functioning of the organism. Just as a really brief introduction, yeah. we can go deeper into some other parts of it if you have questions.
1: Yeah. 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 We can, we can totally do that. You, you mentioned two important figures here in history, Edith Eggman and Rudolf Steiner, who's many of the people listening to the show are probably not a stranger to, to Rudolf Steiner. I also remember reading some of Hildegard von Bingen's early texts and she used, she was, she talked quite a bit about mistletoe and, and how those, those therapeutic approaches might be, you know, able to provide again, this sort of reharmonizing with your environment in order to optimize the immune system, et cetera. And so it's interesting that these, that these technologies, I'm using air quotes here because that's a little tongue-in-cheek, um, we think of technology as sure. whatever, but back, you know, in the early, you know, early written history of, of of what was, you know, came to be modern medicine, there were people experimenting with a truly scientific curiosity as to how some of these things can work. And, you know, mistletoe, I'm looking outside the window right now and there's mistletoe all over the trees. So. We're not talking about some pharmaceutical that cost a billion dollars in research and development. Uh, there were people experimenting with these things early on, which is why I think a lot of people are attracted to these types of alternative modalities because it doesn't seem like there's a, a big you know sticker price associated. It's more about how can we apply this to you, and um, you know it's going to require some trained physicians, etc. But it's encouraging that people are actually taking these these things. You know whether it's herbs or weeds or bushes or whatever else, and kind of retooling them as a means of not putting something synthetic in, but actually putting something in that you can find out in nature. I think that there's, there's something very attractive to that. So before we get into your actual work with mistletoe and how you might see this applied, tell me a little bit about what is anthroposophical medicine for people who have no clue what we're talking about there. It's, it's, a, it's a mouthful. Yeah, that
0: word anthroposophic, right? It's a mouthful for sure. Which, in brief, means the wisdom of the human being or studying Mm. the wisdom, yeah, of the human being, and and that is what anthroposophic medicine is about. I think one could approach that question from many different directions. Maybe I'll start from the perspective of the physician. You know that anthroposophic medicine is a path for the physician Mm. to train those subtle faculties we used to appreciate a lot before technology became so prevalent. You know, how do we train our thinking and our intuition and have a deeper understanding behind the root causes of illnesses and how illness comes about and be able to recognize that in our patients. And, you know, we always have to remember anthroposophic medicine is an extension of our medical training. Mm And Steiner wanted all doctors trained in their profession, but with anthroposophic medicine, we can extend that training to look into more subtle issues that are behind the root cause of illness that I think modern medicine, you know, outside of things like vaccinations and eating well and taking medicines to lower your cholesterol, has lost sight of. And also that these are both spiritual or soul or feeling related as well as physical, and how all these things work together and Great illness starting from birth all the way to the end of life. Mm. And I think this is this path for the physician can be very inspiring because one has to train certain faculties of observation in themselves and intuition. And then for the patient, I think when you see an anthroposophic physician, you're seeing someone who's really looking at that. They're looking at the integration of you as a thinking, spiritual, or feeling soulful, or you know, also a physical human being with with physical problems and looking how all those things are working together and thinking how the therapy needs to address that and an extension to our regular view of illness which we need to understand and you know treat somewhat logically right and professionally that we're also bringing this picture this fourfold picture i say would be the most basic you know how are our patients doing with self-regulation how is their warmth organization right What's going on in their consciousness body? What's living in their feeling life? And and how are different principles of movement? We call that the air body, you know, in anthroposophical <laughs> medicine. What's going on in the warmth body, the air body? And then what's going on in the regenerative body? How is the uh, body responding to an illness? How are our regenerative and vital capacities? We call that the, the water or etheric body, right? And then we look at the physical mineral body and we say, well, how's that? relating to an illness and what's going on in the physical body and besides you know traditional medical practices are there things we can do holistically with substances or therapy to try to bring some balance into this constitutional picture right and bring a better harmony that that stimulates resilience right and salutogenesis in the body which means the body starts to heal things out of its own innate capacity and wisdom Mm. rather Mm -hmm. than forcing something we don't know what the side effects are, right? And we know in modern medicine, the number one, I don't know if it's two or one right now, you know, cause of morbidity and mortality is the medicines we give, right? So I think think this is, yeah, an extension in this way. It can be very beautiful, very inspiring. And yeah, I'm
1: I'm very, I feel very privileged to be part of it. Thank you, Stephen. I I feel like that was a very succinct framework for anthroposophic medicine it also makes it sound very very simple and it probably is from a tech technological standpoint what's lacking though is that when we go into our medical training you know we, you and i both went to different med schools but when you're there you're right. learning surgery and pharmaceuticals and you're, you're you're being pounded that you know that that external stuff like there's some external factor that's missing that's pounded into you because we do know that there are some great breakthroughs that have happened with some of these medicines but it sounds to me like absolutely yeah you you know you you teeter then into the anthroposophical side and then it's like okay which of these things are absolutely necessary and what healing can we actually inspire from within um and and that balance is probably hard for a lot of physicians you know it's very counterintuitive in some ways
0: Right, and medicine's a practice. And if yeah. you don't practice that, then you can't develop the courage and the trust and the confidence to do it. Yeah. Right? As you say, there's times you really can do that and there's times you really have to apply a more urgent or acute medication, you know, yeah. more allopathic medication. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember an article from Francis Peabody. It was a JAMA article, Journal of American Medical Association, back from like nineteen twenty seven, and he had talked about The importance as a medical trainee, I mean, this is a hundred years ago, nearly the importance of as a medical trainee of sitting and, and being with your patient. And what he's talking about is exactly what you just described within the anthroposophical medicine, which is that you have to become a keen observer of the more subtle bodies, the more subtle energies that are, that are at play when a person is in a state of disease. And too often now we have adopted this fast medicine approach where it's like, you've got 20 patients to see in the morning. So, you know, this is how I was trained. You go and you get all the labs, you get all the imaging at four in the morning, you get everything done so that when you arrive at seven, the nurses give you their little sign out. You look at the imaging, you create your differential diagnosis, you create your treatment plan, and then you go to see the patient. And only then do you actually get to have your hands on them or really see them and be present with them. And that is, a, that is a, a, an approach that might work sometimes, but it certainly doesn't seem to be working as a whole within this conventional model. So this, this practice of, of being aware and being present and kind of holding space for, the, for your experience with the patient and their experience with you is there's some therapy in that. In, in my work in hospice and palliative care, I don't have the answer to mortality. But what I can be is present and still with you and have my hands on you and really just kind of observe what's happening. And that's the skill set that I'm hoping to continue to hone, you know, as I embark into my own journey with anthroposophical medical training. But it is very confronting. I will say that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I I think sometimes we forget that part of medicine is the caregiving. Yeah, not all illnesses can be cured. We're always trying to cure the illness. Of course, that's our primary goal. But there are illnesses that can't be cured. And so much in modern medicine, when that occurs, people are just sort of, you know, tossed out, here's a maintenance medicine, not too much we can do. But there's a lot you can do, because you know, the experience of illness is working on so many levels, physical, soul, spiritual. And yeah, and there is a lot we can do for people to make their quality of life much better or live with an illness at a much higher level, not trying to say that that's the goal of anthroposophic medicine to hold somebody there. But sometimes we forget that Yeah, palliative care and, and caregiving is a big reason we went into medicine, right. As well as wanting to cure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like whenever uh, I introduce palliative care to many patients, they think, why did my doctor recommend I see palliative care? Are they giving up on me? And I have to reframe that for them and say, your doctor cares so deeply about you that they know that adding some extra support as you're going through this healing journey, whether or not you get healed is not the question. We know that you need, you need some hard conversation and you need somebody to ask you those hard questions and hold space for whatever answer comes to be. And then we may shift courses. You know, we may decide not to do any more chemotherapy or we may decide to do more chemotherapy and radiation because you've got quote, a lot more to live for. It's It's the, the nuance is kind of where the magic starts to play out after you've learned all the surgery and the medicine and the physical exam stuff. The magic is in that connection that you have with a person in aligning human to human with them, holding hands and stepping forward into the unknown. That's, that's an important part of medicine that, um, is an important part of the practice, but only after you've kind of, I suppose, um, mastered your, (laughs) your primary training. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about mistletoe. Um, tell me, what does mistletoe therapy look like for for your patients? You know, they maybe walk me through uh, sort of what the treatment itself may look like and, and where you've been finding some successes.
0: Sure. Just very briefly, I'll mention that mistletoe can be used for other things besides cancer. It has properties in relation to arthritic problems, autoimmune, sleep, other kind of aspects of salutogenic healing but yes, cancer is the primary focus, and most patients that come to me are interested in using mistletoe, or it's also called viscum album, which is this white berry mistletoe that grows in Central Europe and is starting to grow in the trees here because people have brought it over, uh, how that might impact their healing journey with cancer. So I think if people want to add mistletoe into their therapeutic plan, it can be given alone, for sure. I would say it's mostly used as an adjuvant therapy, though, to work with other things, because mistletoe just plays ball so well. There are so (laughs) few interactions with other medications. I mean, you know, so few, that there's very few situations in oncology where you can't use mistletoe. Um, Most of the research has focused on quality of life at first, and I think there it's pretty unrefutable that for things like sleep, quality of life, appetite, mood, depression, vitality, things like this, mistletoe has been so helpful in patients receiving chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, or just going through cancer. And then there are studies showing how mistletoe can work to actually kill cancer through immune surveillance and apoptosis, which is the actual destruction of the cancer. So there's many levels on which it works. So if people come in and want to use it, we have to decide what's the role. You know, Usually it's adjuvant. Are they using it with other integrative therapies or are they using it with other allopathic therapies? It's mostly an injection. So you have to get people over that thought that it's an injection and it can cause some local red reactions especially in the first three months that might be a little sore and that's uh, one of those times where we try to teach people yes you know warmth and showing an immune reaction and a, you know this is part of a dendritic cell reaction going in the body training your body to look for cancer cells is so important so we have mm-hmm. to get people used to the fact that there are some small reactions and things but they're all temporary nothing nothing serious it can also be given intravenously and. In more heightened situations with metastasis and so on, so it can also be given that way. And in Europe, they they even inject it into tumors themselves or oh, intra- wow. or, into or into the lungs. It's not so easy to do here um, in this country because of regulations. But uh, yeah, so it has a very very wide possibility for use. And I think more and more people are asking, yeah, how can I extend or improve my my treatment? You know, with cancer. So that's a very brief outline. It's very easy to do. I think learning the injections at first is the biggest challenge, but most people get, get right through it. It's not too much of a problem. Yeah. And most people will say they feel better on it. You know, I think that's the big thing. They feel, yeah, more resilient. And that's so important uh, in the treatment. And, and then we see in many cancers, especially solid tumors, Certainly, the strength of mistletoe is what I would call solid tumors. Those are like organ tumors, like breast cancer, Mm -hmm. prostate cancer, or lung cancer. There are some benefits in lymphomas and leukemia, but that's less studied. And I think it plays a little bit more of an adjuvant role in those situations.
1: So I just got out of a cold plunge before I started producing this podcast episode. And I stay for about five minutes, ideally between 40 and 50 degrees. There's all kinds of benefits to cold immersion therapy. The hardest part, though, is that when you get out, your body shivers, your body shakes. You do some muscle contraction instead of movement to get that blood flowing. Then you take a nice hot shower. But you'll still find that for a half hour or so, your body's trying to re-equilibrate to the ambient temperature. And for me, I switched from tea to Organifi's Cacao Harmony, which is comes in a scooper. You put a scoop of this in hot water and you blend it together and it's like a hot chocolate but it's loaded with a whole bunch of stuff. It helps you rebalance your hormones, helps you feel energized and warms you up. And for our female listeners, it can help you support the symptoms of PMS. And it does this through the cacao, through maca, through chasperry, which, is, which has some adaptogenic properties of itself, shatavari, and stinging nettle. You can get your own canister of Organifi Harmony by going to organifi.com beloved. You will save 20% off your purchase. I can't recommend these products enough. This is my favorite product of theirs that comes in a hot solution. So while it's still cold here in Louisville, a cup a day of their Cacao Harmony really hits the spot. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Stephen Johnson. You mentioned a really interesting term to me, Im- immune surveillance, which gets me, you know, thinking down the line as well of like the autoimmune conditions where for those out there who don't know, autoimmunity sort of in a nutshell is that your immune system has a hard time distinguishing friend from foe. So you've got this hypervigilance of an immune system that starts attacking let's say, you know, glandular tissue like the thyroid for example or endometriotic implants and endometriosis, that type of thing. You get this sort of systemic inflammatory process because the immune system is fighting against your own body. And so when you talk about immune surveillance, is that actually what you mean? Is you actually help reset the immune system in such a way that it becomes vigilant against the bad guys, so to speak, and less vigilant perhaps against healthy tissue? Um,
0: partially. I, I should probably extend what I said just a little bit sure. when we talk about autoimmune phenomenon. I mean, immune surveillance means things in relation to cancer like raising the level of natural killer cells mm-hmm. you know it, mm-hmm. it it means raising the recognition of lymphocytes you know to the cancer and things like that that have directly to do with your immune cells that normally protect you from cancer or are fighting the cancer when you get it so on that sense i would call it immune regulation maybe and then you're right i mean autoimmune phenomenon has things to do with the type of infl- inflammation that's going on in the body, right? We know there's this, they call it Th1, Th2. I won't get into that because it's very complicated. But, but yes, mistletoe can help shift it back into a more regulatory mode in the immune system, which I think plays into autoimmune illness, where there's a, a regulation on that level of the type of inflammation going on and how the body able to regulate that. With mistletoe, you do have to be careful, though, with autoimmune because illnesses because its it does work through a, a salutogenic inflammation. All healing involves inflammatory processes. And mistletoe can trigger that quite a bit in the beginning. So if you're in a flare oh, of I see. Crohn's disease, you wouldn't take mistletoe unless that was under control. Hmm. If it was in a very balanced state, where you're taking medication, and, and then we could try low doses of mistletoe. For instance, I think we were going to talk a little bit about Helleborus Niger*. Yeah, you know, and there is also a medicine we're using in cancer that I think has a really strong role also in autoimmune illnesses because it has similar processes, or sorry, similar properties to mistletoe, but works uh, more on the anti-inflammatory polarity. You know, whereas mistletoe is very warming and inflammatory. So it can be used, but with some caution in autoimmune illness, and often then it's used with Helleborus or other remedies in in more acute autoimmune phenomena. Yeah, wow. Hope that's helpful. I hope that's clear. But
1: well, I mean, just like with anything, you know, there's nothing as a silver bullet. It's not like now this is the we found the fountain of youth or something like that. People love to hear that type of stuff. <laughs> but you know, I, one thing that does come to mind though is if people feel so great when they're receiving mistletoe therapy, is there any application of mistletoe therapy as just a sort of maintenance therapy for well-being? Have you, I mean, have you been experimenting with that at all, even for somebody who doesn't have advanced cancer, let's say?
0: Yeah, mistletoe, I I think lately in the last decade, the thought of using mistletoe preventatively has taken a stronger hold. I think in the beginning, people were concerned, well, if you take too much mistletoe early and you develop a, you start to accommodate to it, or you develop some antibodies to it, and then you got cancer, maybe it wouldn't be as effective. Oh, interesting. But I think what we're seeing now is that very low doses of mistletoe, you know, using very low doses, either homeopathic or just low milligram dosages have been really helpful when there's problems with what I call self regulation, you know, so people with sleep disorders, people with depression, people with chronic inflammation, like we just talked about, including arthritis or autoimmune things, people who are just so cool, and we have this sense out of our you know, anthroposophical picture that they're at risk for cancer, right? Or maybe yeah. it's even in the family tree. I would say, yes, it is. people are starting to use mistletoe that way, and I use it that way at times. There's many different types of mistletoe, which is great. It gives us so many choices. There are so many potencies and, and ways that it's made. Yeah. So it it gives us a lot of options. It's probably good to mention also that mistletoe grows on many different trees. So there are many, many different what we call host trees it grows on. And and that plays into how we use mistletoe. Actually, the tree it grows on has a lot to do with which one we choose constitutionally for a patient. So maybe for reproductive cancer, we're using mistletoe grown on the apple tree, right? Or for a very aggressive cancer, we're using mistletoe grown on the ash tree. And I think there's a whole homeopathic, anthroposophic constitutional picture on why we do that. You know, what are the qualities of, the, mm-hmm. of, of that tree you know, therapeutically? And then there are many scientific studies that just look at the proportion of constituents and how certain, you know, proportions of these constituents seem to work better on different types of cancer. So that's another nice thing. You can look at mistletoe quite from a quite scientific or academic point, or we can get into a very constitutional and holistic sense, you know, and prescribing of how we use it. So it's it's very, again, very gratifying that way. I think most of us try to bring both of those together in some way, you know?
1: So if somebody were listening right now and they were like, wow, I'm going to go and Google or, you know, whatever search online for, uh, for a homeopathic mistletoe, is that something that's available on the market? And is that something you would caution against based on the sort of nuances you just described? I think for
0: cancer, it's been shown that the injectable or IV mistletoe is far, far more effective because so much of the mistletoe is, I would just say, broken down in the gut. Mm -hmm. So it's not as effective. Of course, homeopathically, I think oral mistletoe can have some effect I don't think it's been shown to be as successful, as injectable, but sometimes in pediatrics or brain metastasis or things like that, we will use oral, but generally we don't. I think oral mistletoe is used a lot for these other problems like seizures, Hmm. right, or sleep problems like that. Uh, And it's used in homeopathy. To get the prescription mistletoe that we use for cancer, you have to see a physician, to get the mistletoe unless you go over to Europe and get it yourself, the injections. Yeah. And it's a, I put a lot of it in our book. We did write a book, the faculty of the mistletoe training. I'll just say did write a book that just came out called uh, mistletoe and the future of integrative oncology. And there's a lot in that for people who have questions about it and it's on amazon.com and it's really pretty thorough and we really wrote the book as a service to mistletoe and integrative oncology. If there are any profits, it's all going back into research and training and to patient support. Yeah. It was written by the faculty the, that trains the doctors. And uh, yeah, so if anyone really is looking for a resource, that we wrote that really for people in North America to understand it hope it's okay. I mentioned the book, but it just came out. and
1: in- Of course. I, I got a copy for Christmas. I tore through it. As soon as I opened it, I was starting to read it because as soon as it became available for pre-order, <laughs> I was like, I want that. And my mom knew I wanted it. So she ended up getting it for me as a Christmas oh, gift. Nice. Uh, it's a really well done book. So It's an introductory book. You
0: know, It can introduce a doctor to mistletoe and it can introduce a patient. It's not going to go into the deep depths of of prescribing mistletoe, but it gives I think a good overview for people who are trying to get oriented to it and yeah. and
1: maybe what the possibilities are. Yeah, yeah, it's a, I'm glad that you wrote that book. Um, and I I'm looking to pursue this myself. I am in hospice and palliative care, and I, I also deal with a lot of uh, younger women who are um, nice. have autoimmune conditions. So it's something I'm really interested in exploring with you personally and professionally as well. So we'll put a pin in oh, that great. part of the conversation, and when I get go and we can have another uh, another uh, interview in the future. Okay. I would be remiss I think if I didn't have you talk a little bit more about salutogenesis because I do think that that's kind of uh that's sort of the the heart and soul of anthroposophic medicine I think in many ways or at least in your practice. So I wanted to read a little passage from a, a an article that you have posted on your website which we're going to link everything including your book in the show notes, but there's several requirements for salutogenesis to take place and the third one is that we win through through to the conviction that our thoughts and feelings are as important for the world as our actions. Hating someone is just as destructive as a physical blow. This leads to the insight that I not only do something for myself when I perfect myself, but I do something for the world. The world is served as much by my pure feelings and thoughts as it is by my good deeds. kind of brings Voltaire to mind. Tend to your garden. I want to th- kind of throw the ball to, into your court to talk a little bit about how salutogenesis has kind of permeated through your medical career and how you now view your practice through the lens of these requirements.
0: Yeah, I think, like you said, it's at the heart and soul of anthroposophic medicine. I think anthroposophic medicine has been a salutogenic medicine from its inception. That word didn't exist when Rudolf Steiner and Edith you know, hmm. first founded the, the principles. That Sophic medicine. It came from uh, a sociologist, Aaron Antonovsky, who published a lot, I think, in the 1980s, early 90s, don't quote me exactly, but I'm pretty sure that was the time, who studied these octonarians, you know, people who lived to be 100 years or older, who went through Auschwitz and went through these tragedies, mm-hmm. of you know, the concentration camps. And one of the common principles that he found was that, those who could take an experience and, and in their thoughts and in their feelings didn't just go to anger or reaction, but actually saw it in a context of purpose or somehow out of their own self-guided you know, insight, they, they looked for the meaning or what could be, gosh, if I dare say blessing, maybe it's not the right word, but could be something they could gain out of this. How could they become stronger? Yeah. And how could they gain insights into themselves and human beings? So they didn't just focus on the negativity of it, but on the transformation of their thoughts and feelings. And he felt that was one of the common denominators in the study that ended up uh, being a large part of why, you know, with all this deprivation of nutrition and stress, how did these people live to be so old, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And be so healthy. So that was part with the self. And then I think Rudolf Steiner took this step, especially in his work, his book, Knowledge of Higher Worlds, which is about individual training, how how by self-observation and and developing a meditative life of self-observation, that we start to realize that what we're carrying in our feelings and our thoughts and even our actions to the extent that they don't come together, that our thoughts are and our feelings are mm-hmm. going in different directions, or what we're doing is not in alignment with our, our, our deepest true thoughts and feelings, you know, that leads both to illness and ourselves, but it also puts kind of, I would say like parasitic kind of impulses out around us that, that what we do to each other by, by carrying ill thoughts and ill feelings for people or, or that leading into jealousy or fear or subtle, you know, reactions towards others that, that, that leads to, into breaking down the whole social milieu and we can't build up this, um, you know, a social organism that really resent, represents human beings in a way of equality and in a way of trust and in a way of justice. And so I like to think about it that way that, you know, when we really work on transforming this, we're not just doing it for ourselves, but then we also put impulses out into the world that, that really can transform it in a healthy way. And Rosanna also brought spiritual aspects to it, that thoughts are real things, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's something hard to see. I think it's something we can follow in our experience if we really step back and see, you know, what does our attitude bring into the world? You know, what? what are we really creating in the world? I, I think if we step back in a logical way, we could feel that, we could sense that, even if it's hard to see. So, yeah, I think this is really important, and I think... From what you said when we first started, it's very important for the physician. I mean, if you go in with an attitude <laughs> of, you know, how can I find courage and how can I find a way to understand this person? How how can I separate my own feelings and thoughts, you know, about this? And can I can I really generate something out of my meeting with this patient that's unique and, mm. and individualized, you know, for this relationship, then we find special things happen and we're able to support the patient and the patient feels that, you know, and I, I, I can't help but observing that when the patient feels a trust in their physician, they tend to get better. Yeah. Also partially from that because there's a trust Mm -hmm. in things, right. And then in your own thoughts and feelings, you become more aligned with your healing and you have more confidence. And yeah, we, we know, right. Even if we break it down into looking at the autonomic nervous system, that when that kind of stress is reduced, Right. And that we feel more whole and our mm-hmm. feeling and willing, you know, more integrated, that our immune parameters go up. Yeah, right? Our immune system is stronger and more active. Our our vasculature is better, our heart rate is better, our blood pressure is better, right? Our hormonal secretions are more balanced. So we know that this is also the aspect of working with our thoughts and feelings in this way leads also to a harmony and homeostasis within yeah within the organism of ourselves but i think also in the social organism so i hope that wasn't too long but i, I think it's a, a really powerful principle that's missing desperately miss i think it should be the whole foundation of public
1: health actually going forward <laughs> does uh, it also brings up a lot of uh you know the, the role of fear And disease or dis-ease. And uh, what we've been going through these past couple of years, like, yes, we need to be considerate of the public health implications of a virus ravaging our population. But we also need to then consider as well the importance of human connection and being close and being able to hug your mom. And as you were talking about this and and the role of uh, Aaron, uh, what was Aaron's last name, the uh, researcher?
0: Uh, Antonovsky. Antonovsky.
1: Antonovsky. Yeah. So he was working with these octogenarians who had survived, you know, the Holocaust and had escaped Germany. Whatever. Victor Frankel, of course, came to mind. And um, one quote that I I just has always stuck with me is, "This is he's the author of 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 course of Man's Search for Meaning." For anybody out there who hasn't read that book, it, it's exceptional and it really is kind of salutogenesis from a an insider's perspective on surviving an internment camp and, uh, well, not even an internment camp, but a concentration camp. And Viktor Frankl, one of the quotes I always bring up is everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. And I think oftentimes the way that we approach healing of a patient is that we put them into this box and we have set, we already kind of set prognosis and timeline, how much time you're going to have in the future without really developing a good relationship with them and i would say that perhaps if we didn't have a relationship with the patient perhaps that data set that you're applying to them is is useful on the other hand if we build a relationship with this person and they feel cared for does that change how this data set applies? And, and like you said, I mean, of course, being in hospice medicine, I've seen this happen more often than not. A person comes into hospice care, they spend the rest of their, their life at home with family and friends coming in and out, bringing them food, giving them kisses, telling them funny stories, you know, recalling the times in college when they, you know, were out chasing girls, whatever it is, it's that community that actually inspires a state of, uh, a state of... um Reharmonization with their surroundings. And that actually is therapeutic in and of itself. So you can call it prayer. You can call it community. You can call it the the gift of laughter, the medicine of, of, uh, of family, whatever it is. There's something important to that. And I think that that is actually something that's largely lacking in how, you know, healers interact with their patients. Like, yes, it's important to know the diagnosis. Yes, it's important to know the treatment. But what is this person really lacking right now? You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had CEOs that come to me and they just want to fix the cancer, like as if they're some sort of robot. And you have to get them to like pause. Let's put that aside and let's actually talk about the things that we can control. We're all going to die someday. Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's 10 days from now. But we have no say as to whether or not part of the contract was you have the privilege of dying one day. What happens from now until then is entirely in your control. And once people can flip that switch, they actually start to feel better. And sometimes they start living even longer. I even had this ovarian cancer patient who came to the clinic and this was when I was in residency, but they decided, well, I don't want any more chemo because it just makes me feel like crap. So they moved to Greece with their husband, who's, who was Greek. And they um, went to Greece and we figured we're never going to see her again. She came back the next year. Her cancer was stable, we called it. She came back the next year Her cancer was stable. She looked, felt great. She came back the next year and just kept coming back for her follow-ups until eventually decided, I'm not going to come back anymore. And you could argue that maybe she had healthier food or she had cleaner water or she was whatever. But I would argue that she figured out that there's something I can, I do have control over. And that's how I love and how I am receiving love from now until whatever in the future, whenever I die. And that in and of itself is therapeutic. So I know I went off in a little bit of a tangent there, but what you're saying is really, really critical for people to understand. I feel like this this concept of salutogenesis, I, I kind of wish that that would have been the starting point in medical school. And then we kind of learn how we can add some adjuvant things thereafter. You know, When you teach, when you're mentoring people in anthroposophic medicine, how do you incorporate salutogenesis into into your practice? How do you model that?
0: You mean teaching other doctors? Are you saying, or how do I do it?
1: Well, you're the you're the president of the Physicians for Anthroposophic Medicine uh, Physicians Association of Anthroposophic Medicine. How do you how can you inspire this practice within other physicians who are kind of new on their journey? Somebody like me.
0: Well, I, at different times in the training course that that there's a four or five year course that's given for physicians. This comes up as a, as a self training for doctors. I I think on one hand, if one really brings all these ideas of salutogenesis into play uh, that has to do with self-help and self-health, excuse me, self-help or self-health that it's part of the path of the physician to stay healthy, being a physician, right? Being Mm -hmm. a physician, can be a very unhealthy practice. Yeah. Starting right from medical school, not sleeping, yeah. right stuffing your emotions, yeah. you know, having to follow the protocols, uh, just all your rhythms that support you are broken down. Nutrition is terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so this idea of how does one stay healthy and stay integrated in these aspects of their thinking, their feeling and their actions, right? I think, if one really practices these different principles of salutogenesis, this can be very helpful. And salutogenesis, I would just say, is built on the six basic exercise of this book, Knowledge of Higher Worlds by Riff Steiner. Mm-hmm. I think it's taken an extension of these meditative practices. And even those exercises were really a transformation of the eightfold Buddha path, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really to a more Western Kind of a uh, meditative path, so they they build from that. So, if one has an interest to take a look at that book, for instance, that's highly recommended to the doctors. But I think taking this practice in this, the practice of salutogenesis, into your medical practice, comes back to this idea of observation, getting to know your patient, the patient trusting you, and beginning to constitutionally. Able to see perhaps certain tendencies right when we do that already as physicians we're worried about are, are you a candidate for heart disease or diabetes right but I think as a as a anthroposophic physician we're also thinking about that in relationship to the quality of life to to as you said with your patient are you really doing uh, are you really fulfilling your essential task in life? Are you really doing what you love? Are you following your passion? Are you <sighs> Are you really pursuing in life what's most important to you? And bringing these elements into the practice and starting to teach solutogenesis to the patient. I mean, this plays into diet, sleep, home care, emotional life, relationships. And we start to realize that all these things are part of it. And even into our substances and therapies, we maybe can't just snap our fingers and change it. But there are certain kinds of substances that can help support things, not just treating the physical illness, but treating things on the level of, you know, emotional health or psychological health. That's built into the remedies. Or um, if I can just add this one other part, we, we know now in psychiatry, right, the whole field of psychiatry now is moving into this recognition of how the gut microbiome and different organs and the endocrine system truly is what plays into our mood and state of health and our psychology right all these drugs affecting our brain are just a little tweak of (laughs) regulating something cause is much deeper in the organism
1: right yeah yeah the gaps diet comes to mind for people to be healthy
0: they have to learn to think with their whole body their fingers, their organs, their feet, their Mm -hmm. nose, not just from the brain materialistically. And so this this whole idea, right, of uh, of bringing this principle of holism to the patient, that they start to see this in their own life as well, and they start to practice salutogenic principles in their own life. Now the level of resilience and self-healing, the capacity for that just goes so much higher. And like you said, with your cancer patient, right, we see so many patients, who either cure themselves or live incredibly well with with their pathology, their disease, right? Yeah. And and it doesn't affect them so much. Their quality of life is is tremendous. I think that potential exists for many, many, many people if they want
1: to pursue it. If you hire me on as your doctor, you're not going to experience the normal thing you experience with your doctors we spend tons of time up to 90 minutes at a time talking through everything related to your environment and your lifestyle and how it impacts your health and those six principles are diet movement breathing hydration sleep and mindset and i add a seventh and that is emf mitigation so a lot of people are wearing biogeometry pendants and harmonizing technologies which does help to harmonize the sea of 5g and the radiation from emf that you're experiencing on a daily basis but what is lacking and, and which i what i've added to my, my repertoire are stickers from a company called waveblock.com the stickers go on your earbuds they go on the back of your cell phone and they block 70 percent of the emf the radiation it's low dose but you're being exposed to this all day long and those earbuds are sitting millimeters from your brain so do yourself a favor Consider all of the elements of a healthy lifestyle. Consider are you really totally taking into account the detrimental impacts of EMF on your life? And then go to waveblock.com, use code BELOVED25, and you will save 25% off your purchase of waveblock stickers for your earbuds and your cell phone. Can't recommend it enough. Let's get back to my conversation now with Steven Johnson. Stephen, you, you speak so beautifully about these topics, and I, I do want to respect your time. I know you've got a, a, some family obligations and things that you're probably looking forward to here on Saturday morning. Um, any final thoughts that you wanted to, to add to wrap up? And then I, of course, want to know where people can find you, and then we'll um, we'll say goodbye for today.
0: Yeah, I would say if you're interested, I mean, maybe if I could just talk about one initiative which has to do with salutogenesis. In the future, I'm turning my attention more and more to this idea of salutogenesis and this idea of bringing these ideas into public health. So we just started this organization, the Foundation for Health Creation, that's going to be focusing on how do we create health, both socially you know, with the planet and also in, in the health of ourselves as human beings. Please feel free to visit that website or take a look or joining in probably Nathan could be asking you shortly if you would help would like to be part of that. Maybe share some of your podcasts and, and, and work with us there. Because it's things like this that we really want to bring out into the world. Because yes. yeah, look at look at these times we live in. You can't if you don't start practicing the building of your own resilience, this is going to be a very difficult world to navigate. And we can't live our lives just jumping from one medicine to another. Right. And right. just putting everyone on antidepressants and and just vaccines. That can't be the whole answer. It's part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer. I guess I'd end with
1: that. Oh, I'm happy to, to work with you in any capacity, Stephen. I, I hope that we can have a, a long working relationship because, um, like I said, I finished my medical training and I was very... You know as I got deeper and deeper, I became more and more disillusioned with what I was you know um, being taught or what I was expected to do in birth or death with our her, her sacred rites of passage. These are the important, most important moments in many people's lives. And then, having found Rudolf Steiner in his work, it was like, wow, here's a framework that allows me to, to sort of shift my internal dialogue just a little bit as to my role here. Like what am I doing here? And what is my role in caring for this person? You know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s, but I've, I've got many, many years ahead. And I'm, I'm super excited to have met you and to just have been introduced to anthroposophic medicine early in my career, because now I can look at everything through the allopathic lens, but, but now try to fine tune exactly what this means and what my role is in this person's life. And um, the way that you describe salutogenesis and, and mistletoe therapy and, and really anthroposophic medicine at large as a whole. Um, is really inspiring to me. And I hope it is inspiring to a lot of other physicians that, hey, w- we can evolve. We can continue to learn and grow. If we had all the answers, this would be pretty boring. <laughs> and uh, and having some...
0: It's a practice.
1: That's yeah, it's a practice. it's a practice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, not having the answers. Yeah, and we put
0: everything into protocols, we won't be able to practice. So that's yeah. the other thing. Now everything's going into a protocol and you have to do it this way. Right. So to automated. It for this, that, for that. Yeah. We really have to break that down. That's not individualized care, and that I think we all want individualized care.
1: Well, especially when we're the ones laying in the hospital bed, we, we don't want to be protocolized yeah, that's yet. What I mean. <laughs> yeah, right. Yet, right we right. all want individual care. Everyone, all, every one of us wants that. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. The people have to wake up to their
0: freedom in medicine that they're losing that very quickly. You know, it's really something to rally around. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's a great book by Victoria Sweet called Slow Medicine. She contrasts the old practices of what you've been describing with the new practice that I described earlier, where you have all of your patients, your imaging, your labs and everything, and you come up with a plan without even seeing the patient. And we are heading more in that direction. So it's, it it is encouraging to meet people like you who are physicians, who are also continuing to reimagine what would this ideally look like if I was the patient laying in the hospital bed. And it's certainly not the way that we're doing things right now. So thank you for carrying the torch, and I'm very excited and looking forward to collaborating in the future.
0: Thanks for having me, Nathan.
1: Well, Stephen doesn't disappoint. I'm so, so grateful that he took out some time. Um, if you want to check out the Physicians Association for Anthroposophic Medicine, you can go to paam.org. They have an annual training week, which I will be attending this May and by the time that this episode is out it's probably already passed but Stephen's also got some really really cool things in the pipeline he is working on the foundation for health creation a part of which I'm going to be serving and we're going to be doing a series of podcasts covering everything from epigenetics to transhumanism and really the future of human health and how we can create a space that allows people to live their best lives so I hope you enjoyed that conversation Please support our sponsors, waveblock.com, Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. Support them so we can keep this show rolling. I'm so grateful to have two incredible brands that are so in line with my values supporting this podcast. We are a 501c3. Any donation you make to us, or if you're a sponsor out there looking to make a contribution, everything is tax deductible. You can find me nathan riley md the host of the podcast i have a practice at belovedholistics.com i work one-on-one with clients i do not accept insurance i support a freedom-focused patient centered approach to caring for women their babies and their partners and then if you want to find the show notes you can go to holistic you'll find all the show notes there and that's all i got for today guys thank you so much for tuning in thank you for your continued support leave us a review five stars on itunes it helps other people find us for those of you who have already have done that, you know who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I'll see you next time on the Holistic Abidjan Podcast. Take care, everybody.